to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about some serious developments in both Peru and in Argentina. Also going to be touching on the uh, recent massive uh, trucker strike happening in South Korea. And also going to be uh, touching on some different worker struggles happening inside New York City. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we are taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. WNBA player Brittany Griner has now been released from a Russian prison in a prisoner swap that seemed to be on again, off again, but was ultimately and finally on. If you recall, and if you don't, it's okay, because I'll always remind you that Russia publicly signaled its asking price for Griner's return way back in May of this year. Yahoo News reported that Russian officials signaled that they would be willing to exchange Griner for arms trafficker Victor Boot. And this has been reported in several state-owned Russian news outlets at the time. But the Biden administration ignored Russia's offer because, as Yahoo News also reported back then, a one-for-one exchange of Griner for Boot would be especially unpalatable for the U.S. since Boot is notorious for being able to get a around sanctions imposed on countries by the U.S. to sell them weapons. One of Boots' nicknames is actually the Sanctions Buster. So releasing him back to Russia is diplomatic egg on the face of the U.S. But no matter how much Biden and Blinken did not want to trade Boot for Griner back in May, no matter how much they tried to ignore Russia's offer, and no matter how much they then tried to take credit for coming up with the offer just a few months ago, the swap happened exactly as Russia wanted it. Not one thing about the original offer changed, and now Brittany Griner is back in the U.S. and Victor Boot is back in Russia. All the talk in the U.S. media, though, about Griner going to a penal colony and potentially being subjected to psychological warfare, well, I'm glad that can finally stop because, honestly, none of this had to happen this way. It didn't have to happen at all. Had the U.S. taken the deal Russia offered in May, Griner wouldn't have even gone to trial. She wouldn't have been found guilty. She wouldn't have been sentenced. All the Biden administration had to do was negotiate with Russia when they first offered. And I got to say, the reporting about prison conditions in Russia that Griner may have been facing, the use of words like penal colony and gulag to describe Russian prisons, well, that's rich coming from a country where the population is only 5% of the world's total population, but has 25% of the world's total incarcerated people. U.S. media talked about Griner possibly going to a penal colony, but what is it when the state sentences someone for a crime they committed in one state, but then sends them to a facility hundreds of miles away, sometimes thousands, from their family and community to work long hours for little to no pay in prison labor? They talked about gulags, but what is the Department of Corrections in this country if that isn't the government agency in charge of the penal colonies that are the state, federal, and local prisons and jails in the U.S.? In this country, you don't even have to be found guilty of a crime to be abused and die in jail. 
18 people have died in Rikers Island this year, a facility that doesn't hold lifers or violent offenders serving decades-long sentences. The people who are incarcerated at Rikers are those awaiting trial, those who are serving a sentence of a year or less for offenses committed in New York City, and those who are being transferred to another facility. One can certainly argue whether Griner should have been arrested or not, but the refusal of the Biden administration to negotiate with Russia way back in May dragged this saga out for Brittany Griner much longer than it needed to have been. It's good she's coming home, but let's not act as if it's because the U.S. is the arbiter of fairness, justice, and goodwill here. Well, it hasn't been a great few weeks for Donald Trump, as a Manhattan jury has now found two Trump organization companies, the Trump Corporation and Trump Payroll Corporation, guilty on all charges they faced, including multiple charges of criminal tax fraud and falsifying business records connected to a 15-year scheme to defraud tax authorities by failing to report and pay taxes on compensation for top executives. The group of eight men and four women who deliberated the case for less than 10 hours over two days handed down a verdict late Tuesday afternoon. Making clear they were convicting the companies and not their namesake, jurors said the evidence showed a culture of fraud in the companies that could not have been boiled down to former Trump Organization CFO Alan Wieselberg, as suggested by the defense. The Trump Organization's internal cleanup of questionable business practices around the time Trump was elected president particularly also struck the jurors as a red flag. Trump's companies could face up to $1.6 million in fines, which honestly kind of seems to me like sofa lint for Trump. However... Considering the sting of losing Georgia, partially because of the terrible strategy of elevating Herschel Walker to be the GOP candidate, and the red wave in the midterms that wasn't, I bet Trump is kind of regretting announcing his bid for 2024 as early as he did. Oh, but that's not going to stop him from staying in the race, though, unfortunately. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Ali Vargas, a writer and journalist with Calcitune News. Ali, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on again, and I uh, look forward to analyzing the, the topic of the day. 
Absolutely. And uh, Ali, of course, uh, uh, I guess now former uh, Peruvian president uh, Pedro Castillo uh, has been arrested as a result of what some are calling uh, a legislative coup there in Peru. And, uh, you know, he's since been replaced by, I believe, his vice president, Dina uh, Boluarte. And this came not long after uh, uh, Castillo announced the uh, dismissal or dissolving uh, of uh, the country's parliament for this very reason. And I mean, there's just so much I feel like to get into here, but just sort of hoping you could just help us understand uh, why all of this is happening. I mean, this all developed pretty quickly. And uh, just how do we get to this point here in Peru? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, quite a, a rapid turn of events as well. So what basically essentially what happened is that uh, the for, for many months now, well, for, you know, Essentially, since Pedro Castillo was elected, the right-wing majority Congress and you know, right-wing parties have a majority in the Congress. They've been trying to impeach him. Um, as, as something that, that's a mechanism that has been completely abused in Peru um, over the past few years, not just against Pedro Castillo, against the former president and the one before that. There's this, this uh, abuse of the uh, mechanism of impeachment to just use... To just, try to use it constantly. And because of the nature of Peruvian politics, presidents very rarely have majorities in Congress. So this creates a co- condition of total political instability. Essentially, no presidents can govern um, no matter their political stripe. And they tried they attempt to do the same with Castillo, even more ferociously than in the past. And it, it, it looked likely like they were going to succeed in... They were going to have a session yesterday, they had a session scheduled of the Congress. It looked likely that they were going to do to impeach him, which I would call a legislative coup, similar to what happened, for example, to Dilma in Brazil, um, in which sort of different uh, parties, through a corrupt alliance, banded together to, um, you know, to oust Dilma and then a right-wing figure took over. And the same... Uh, they wanted to do in Peru. So to avoid this, a few hours before that session, Pedro Castillo uh, announced that he'll be uh, suspending Congress, closing down Congress, and calling new congressional elections. Um, So in response to that, Congress, like an hour later, sessioned anyway, and immediately voted to impeach him. The police and the military then sided with the the Congress, the right-wing Congress, and arrested Pedro Castillo. So this is the, that's the sort of, all of this happened in about 124 minutes. So it's quite a dramatic sort of a couple of hours. And yeah, it's, for me, it, it, you know, we can classify this as a legislative coup. And the Congress itself, the Peruvian Congress, is one of the most uh, discredited and hated in the whole of Latin America. Uh, a recent poll showed that 85% of, a, of Peruvians disapprove of Congress. And now Pedro Castillo himself had a very high disapproval rating, but his uh, approval rating was around 20%, which is obviously very low. But that of Congress was around 10%, which is even lower. Um, so it was, the, the two, Pedro Castillo was clearly an unpopular leader, largely due to a failure to implement uh, the key election promises. But the Congress, the right-wing Congress, is even more unpopular, more discredited. 
Yeah, and that leads me to my next question, Ali, and talking about the trajectory of Pedro Castillo from the time um, of his uh, election. There was a lot of excitement uh, within Peru, within uh, Latin America, and I would say amongst uh, progressive elements uh, uh, around the world in terms of him being elected. But it seems that from the beginning, uh, his administration was plagued by uh, uh, contradictions and issues, both uh, internal and external. And uh, recently, I believe uh, Castillo even left uh, the Peru, uh, the Peru uh, Libre Party. And so, I mean, uh, what have been some of the dynamics um, sort of facing the Castillo administration that you think uh, uh, helped lead up to this point? Yeah, he's a, quite um, a fall from grace for Pedro Castillo. He came in with a lot of fanfare, as he said. But essentially what happened was that he was, he was never part of Peru Libre. And Peru Libre is, uh, you know, by... By most people's, um, you know, definitions, I think, uh, a Marxist party, a socialist party. And he wasn't a member, but they invited him to be their candidate um, because he had been a popular f- figure in, he led the teacher strikes in 2017, etc. cetera. Um, they invited him, um, of course, you know, on the basis of the, their electoral program, which he, he, he said he agreed with. Uh, and then once, once he was elected, he remained with Peru Libre. In fact, he, the most important appointment he has is that of a prime minister. Uh, and the prime minister he appointed was one of the sort of leading figures of Peru Libre, a sort of a, uh, a loyalist of Peru Libre. Uh, a number of his ministers as well were sort of socialist figures, including the foreign minister was a sort of Marxist professor from Lima who uh, immediately went about building a progressive foreign policy, rebuilding relations with Venezuela, etc. Within about a month, within about a month, that broke down. Um, and then essentially Pedro Castillo formed an alliance with um, a sort of middle-class, liberal, uh, centrist, progressive party called Juntos por Peru. He sacked the socialist prime minister, appointed one of these uh, centrist figures called Mir- Mirza Vasquez. And that's where everything, uh, uh, all, all signs of Pedro Castillo being a left-wing government sort of came, came apart because Mitha Vasquez, one of the roles of prime ministers to as well appoint ministers, that she got rid of all of the socialist ministers, including the foreign minister, placing in them more pro-US figures, more centrist figures. And that was the point about a month into Pedro Castillo's presidency that the it became clear that the electoral promises wouldn't be delivered on. And Mitha Vasquez herself said that, the, for example, the Constituent Assembly to draw up a new constitution is not a priority. Um, the issues of agrarian reform were, were scrapped. The issues of nationalization of natural resources, which was a promise in the campaign, also scrapped. Um, so none of the key planks of the campaign, which won in the election, were, were delivered. So... Then his own supporters peel away. Um, you know, the, the left splits in a number of different ways, but Pedro Castillo himself no longer has any supporters uh, because the right, who he is allied with, and the liberals he has allied with, they still don't support him. And his own people that voted for him now no, no longer do. So Pedro Castillo is essentially completely alone by the time this could happen. 
Yeah, I mean, it's definitely uh, been a pretty wild and unfortunate set of circumstances. And uh, switching gears uh, a little bit, Ali, to uh, elsewhere in Latin America, um, this week, uh, former Argentinian president and current uh, uh, vice president, uh, Lisa Kirchner, was sentenced to uh, six years of incarceration on charges of uh, of fraud and corruption. Excuse me, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. Um, And, you know, uh, there have been accusations really from the beginning of this, uh, of lawfare and this uh, maneuvering of the uh, legal system, basically to try to carry out a a political case against uh, Kirchner. And so I was just hoping you could sort of break this down as well. I mean, there's a lot that's been happening with this, too, with, you know, a recent assassination attempts uh, against Kirchner and all these sorts of things. And uh, how did things reach this point in Argentina from your perspective? Yeah, um, well, the government of Argentina has essentially two factions uh, around the president, Alberto Fernandez, who I classify as a sort of progressive social democrat um, that, you know, uh, can be pulled towards the center at times. And the vice president, Cristina Fernandez, who is uh, a left, you know, a left-wing figure in the mold of the traditional pink tide, um, you know, friends with Chavez and Evo Morales and things like this. And there has been some tension, though not a formal split at any point, that's important to say, not a formal split, and they still remain, uh, you know, working together. But there is a huge sort of media campaign against Cristina Fernandez, even though she's not the president herself. Um, she is seen as a the sort of the leftist cancer inside the government. That's how the media portray her. And there's a level of kind of just just even on a personal level, you know, the hatred on a personal level. They'll they'll talk about her mannerisms, the way she speaks, her clothes, all these sorts of things. So it goes even beyond politics to to build a, to demonize her on a personal level. And yeah, I think the the fact that Argentina has numerous problems. Um, which which is true, for example, on inflation, on unemployment and things like this. Actually, Cristina Fernandez has her own critique of that. She says that that's because the president, Alberto Fernandez, hasn't done enough to challenge the IMF, to challenge the legacy of the ex-neoliberal president, Macri. Um, but the media portray all of the problems existing country has on her. And, you know, once she's removed things, will get better. And so there's this incredible level of just demonization that can lead to violence. And now the the judicial branch uh, of power has gone after her. The judiciary completely, you know, um, molded during the military dictatorships, uh, servile to to the interests of uh, of the elites. And now they've gone leading their own persecution. So I think all of the different sort of branches of power are attacking her because she is the the voice of the left within the government. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Ali, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to 
by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the trucker strike in South Korea. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Jia Hong from Nodo for Korean Community Development. Jia, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And Jia, since about November 23rd, over 25,000 truck drivers in South Korea have been on a strike in what is uh, uh, the second uh, nationwide action of this kind uh, that they've carried out this year. And uh, a few days ago, we saw trade unions in South Korea uh, turn out a massive demonstration to the National Assembly in Seoul protesting against uh, what they see as strike busting tactics by the conservative government of Yoon Suk-yeol, which has ordered the truckers back to work. Now, the Cargo Trucker Solidarity uh, Union, which represents uh, the truckers, have called this order, quote, undemocratic and unconstitutional. And so uh, just to begin, Gia, uh, if you could help us understand what is motivating this strike uh, in South Korea amongst the truckers, what are their demands, and just uh, what is the context of this uh, labor action here? Sure. So the truck drivers are demanding that the country's safe rate system become permanent. This kind of safe rate system is basically a minimum freight rate. And this was introduced in the beginning of the pandemic um, in 2020. And it's really allowed truckers to make a living without having to increase their driving so much to the degree that, you know, their driving becomes unsafe. Uh, It's basically an income guarantee program for truckers who are in shipping, container, and cement truck industries. And they're also demanding that other industry drivers, um, such as those who work in fuel, chemical package deliveries, etc., that they are paid a permanent, you know, a minimum pay guarantee. And so the safe rate system was actually set to expire at the end of this year. And like you mentioned, they, this isn't the first time that the truck drivers are striking. They actually striked back in June for eight days, and they forced the government to extend the safe rate system until 2025. Um, and now they're looking to make the system permanent. So that's one of their key demands is to make this safe rate system permanent. Um, and also they're looking for a minimum pay guarantee for drivers and other industries. The truckers are really struggling with the soaring fuel prices and the rising cost of living. I'm sure this is true for all of us in the United States, but also all around the world. The price of living and the cost of living is really soaring and making living conditions difficult for people, including the truckers. Um, The price of diesel, which diesel trucks are primary in South Korea, so the price of diesel um, was $1,000. 961 per liter compared to a 46 percent you know there's a basically a 46 percent increase in the price of diesel over the past year and the south korea's consumer prices also have increased dramatically and so truckers are arguing that they've been forced to work longer um, and work and the longer they work it's unsafe for them to be driving for so many hours 
And so this is kind of the backdrop of why they're demanding um, the safe rate system uh, to become permanent. And they're also demanding for yeah, and in the strike, uh, the truck drivers have targeted uh, a few domestic sectors like construction, chemicals, automobiles, and gas supply. And I wonder, has there been any solidarity for the striking truck drivers from other segments of the labor movement or the public? Yeah, I, so the truck drivers are part of the Cargo Truckers Solidarity Union. Um, and this union is part of the a greater trade union confederacy called the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions, the KCTU. Um, the KCTU is the largest confederation of trade unions in South Korea. They represent over 1.1 million workers over a variety of you know industries. And so um, basically the KCTU has been releasing statements of solidarity. They've condemned the, the back-to-work orders from the UN administration as martial law that opens the door up for dictatorship. Um, they've also organized massive protests and rallies. Um, I think it was mentioned this past Saturday there was one um, to commemorate day 10 of the strike. So the KCTU, the people who have shown up to these protests and rallies, they're not specifically just truckers. They're from a wide variety of industries, um, workers from from the trucking industry all the way to uh, to the petroleum industry, to, to a variety of industries they've shown up in support in these protests and these rallies. Um, and in addition to kind of within South Korea, um, the KCTU also has denounced kind of South Korea's government response at the International Labor Organization meeting. And the International Labor Organization actually sent a letter to the Korean government last Friday as well, stating that, you know, these back-to-work orders are restricting worker freedom, worker freedom of association rights. So, And the International Transport Workers Federation also released a statement in solidarity. So there's definitely... You know, solidarity among workers domestically as well as um, internationally. Yeah. And, you know, a moment ago, uh, Gia, I was uh, talking about how the uh, uh, South Korean government uh, under President uh, Yoon Suk-yeol has uh, uh, ordered the truckers back to work. And I was wondering if you could sort of get a little deeper into uh, uh, how the government has been responding to uh, uh, this strike uh, sort of beyond that piece. Yeah. So, you know, the Yoon government, the Yoon Suk-yeol, is the new conservative president of South Korea. He, beginning from his campaign, he called trade unions the frontline guards of his political opponents and the quote-unquote instigators of trouble. So he's never really been pro-labor, and he's shown that since before he was even president. And now, um, with this strike reaching past two weeks now, um, you're right, Yoon Zaga has issued various uh, executive orders that are basically like back to, uh, back to work orders. Um, so last Tuesday, he demanded that 2,500 cement truck drivers return to work. Uh, and actually earlier today, uh, a second back to work order was issued. Um, and this was for the steel and petrochemical industries. This is basically 
uh, un- very unprecedented for for these back to work orders to be targeting so many truck drivers. Um, and the orders are based on this very kind of controversial act from 2004, and it allows the government to issue these back to work orders um, if the economy is uh, at risk or during an emergency. And this kind of clause is just so vague that whether when the economy is at risk or during an emergency, you know, so this vague clause has been subject to a lot of criticism because it kind of gives the government undefined and broad powers to break strikes. And so now uh, the UN administration, this is their second back-to-work order just earlier today. UN has even in speeches or, you know, behind closed doors um, gone so far as to liken the strike to North Korea's nuclear threat. And so he's really treating this worker struggle as a war, um, and he's not really treating this as a negotiation with the workers. Yeah, not only is he not treating it as a negotiation, um, the the war the workers continue to strike despite the back to work order. So, I mean, how do you see the situation playing out if the South Korean government does not come to the table and negotiate with the workers? Yeah, so that's right. The the truckers are not deterred by these back to work orders. You know, the, after the first one, they kind of defied it and symbolically and at a rally, like shaved their heads, um, continuing to you know strike and continuing to be steadfast in their demands. Um, in terms of how this might play out, the second after the second back to work order, I think that the 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 union is discussing kind of a vote whether to continue, uh, you know, the strike. Uh, but we have to remember that this isn't the first strike that the truckers um, have been have been instituting since this. Even this year, this is the second strike in just six months, and uh, you know, the this particular strike, you know, it will depend on the KCTU's funds that they have for the strike and how the UN administration continues to pursue its back-to-work orders. But already, in this second strike, they have passed the two-week mark, and last time, they the strike lasted eight days. So we already see, you know, six months later that the, the workers are steadfast. They won their part of their demands, and they're, they're not stepping down. They're continuing to demand that, you know, the safe rate system become permanent, not just be extended. And back in June, after the eight-day strike, the government, you know, agreed to negotiate. You know, we are in a different situation, but I think whether this strike wins some concessions or does not win any, I I do believe that these strikes will continue um, because this is already the second large-scale trucker strike in the past six months. Um, and again, even after winning some concessions six months ago, they're striking again. And I think this is just because the working conditions are not improving. Uh, people are demanding improvements to their working conditions. Um, the cost of living is, is going up continuously. And so uh, they really just the truckers really just need guarantees, a better system, a living wage and things like that. But it's just not being met. And so I do think that the strikes will continue regardless of what happens at the end of this one. 
Yeah, you know, and gee, I was also thinking, you know, of course, we're having this conversation in the United States where right now we're seeing a number of uh, labor struggles being carried through, um, whether we're talking about striking uh, uh, railroad workers or uh, unionizing efforts at um, companies like Starbucks or uh, the California academic workers. And I feel like we don't really see a ton of coverage on the labor struggles in countries like South Korea, just like we didn't see a ton of coverage about, you know, uh, the massive uh, uh, Indian farmers uh, uh, protest that happened a little while ago as well. And so for those of us here in the U.S. and really in the global north, I mean, why do you see it as uh, important for us to not only be aware of, but to be in solidarity with uh, the labor struggles that we see in South Korea and elsewhere? Yeah, I think that's a you know, fantastic point. So the, you're right, the news doesn't emphasize the struggles of workers around the world. And this is precisely for the reason that if we see workers in other countries um, continuing to strike despite not meeting their demands, continuing to strike uh, despite back-to-work orders, then you know, we will feel inspired. And you know, it, that's why it's so important for us to be in solidarity with these movements around the world and also with these truck drivers in South Korea, you know, as we are in solidarity with them, like we can help give light and attention to their struggle and help them continue that struggle, but also feel inspired in our own struggle. And, you know, in the U.S., like you mentioned, Biden had uh, called on Congress to adopt the contract with no paid sick days for railroad workers. But the context is completely different, but the parallels are there. You know, the government is not meeting the needs of the workers for basic conditions like sick leave or minimum pay. Um, and the drivers in Korea have been striking for two weeks. I think the the economy has been struggling. The government is, you know, panicked. They're trying to figure out what to do. There are ways that we can feel inspired from what the South Korean truck drivers have been doing for these two weeks, striking despite these back-to-work orders. And I think it's important for us here to be in solidarity with, with the truck drivers in Korea to give them that support and then also, therefore, to feel inspired and learn from each other's struggles. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Gia, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about uh, different worker struggles happening inside New York City. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Amir Kafji, an award-winning journalist based out of New York City, who you can follow on Twitter at Amir Kafji 91 Amir, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. And uh, Amir, recently in New York City, we've been seeing uh, uh, an incident of uh, construction workers uh, falling to their deaths. And there's actually a, a, a law that would actually impose hefty penalties on companies for the deaths of workers that's been pending for months, uh, but has not yet passed or been put into law. And, you know, people have been trying to apply pressure to uh, Governor Kathy Holchel on this point, uh, uh, seemingly to uh, not much uh, progress up until this point. And so I was hoping you could help us understand uh, more about the situation of this uh, worker's death and uh, what the struggle uh, around the rights for uh, uh, these sorts of penalties and how that's been playing out. So it seems to be um, more dangerous than ever to be working on a construction site in New York City. Um, New York City's in the midst of a bit of a building boom right now. And um, it's you have many of these places are uh, of these construction sites are non-union sites or they're mixed uh, sites with some being union members, some being not union members. And it seems to be if you're a non-union construction worker in New York City, you're more likely to get killed. Um, many are falling to their deaths because of inadequate safety equipment that is found on, on these sites. Um, nearly 80% of private construction in New York is done by non-union workers, and that's that's increasing. You know, um, Labor unions have been struggling to fight against this uh, recent trend of um, non-unionization, non-union work sites in New York. And um, it seems like it's a losing battle. The non-union construction labor seems to be on a decline, especially since the 2008 recession. Um, all that to, being to say is that because of the fact that there's not enough uh, union construction sites in New York, there's not enough um, worker power on these sites. Workers and workers in union construction sites um, have a lot of oversight over safety, and that's not the case on, on these non-union construction sites. Many of the uh, the contractors that uh, that work on non-union construction sites hire immigrant workers, um, formerly incarcerated black and Latino workers, workers that don't have um, a lot of political agency or power because of their status, um, whether it be their immigration status or because they're on parole and and it's very precarious if you're, not, you're on parole. You don't want to make too much of a fuss or you risk going back to prison. Um, so all that is happening on these construction sites. And there seems to be not as much of a, an, uh, uh, an impetus from the governor to really do something about it. There's a law called Carlos Law that, that was passed by the New York State Senate and the New York State Assembly. And it's waiting for Governor Hochul. To, uh, to pass the law. The law was introduced um, in 2018, and it passed last year, but yet she, is, uh, she hasn't signed it. And that law could significantly reduce the amount of um, deaths on construction sites by creating um, a bit of a by creating a bit of an incentive for non-union contractors to make the work site safer. And Amir, what about uh, the New York uh, Committee for Occupational Safety and Health? I mean, because they, they certainly have regulations that these companies uh, are supposed to follow to ensure the health and safety of their workers. What's their response been? Have there been crackdowns? I mean, what role do they have to play in um, not protecting workers on these uh, work sites? 
Well, you know, OSHA has, has been giving, um, they've been giving fines to some of these construction sites, um, to these contractors. But the problem is there's layers upon layers of subcontracting. So a general contractor would hire a subcontractor for different parts of the building or the construction site, whether it be the plumbing or the electric or um, the drywall, whatever it is. And then in turn, those contractors, subcontractors, subcontract out a lot of the labor to what is known as body shops. And oftentimes those workers are moved from one work site to another without any continuity. They don't know where they're going to be Monday morning, and they don't know where they're going to be Tuesday morning. They'll work on one site, and then they'll bounce around to another all over the city, which makes it very difficult for OSHA to determine what exactly is the conditions at any given construction site because you never have the same workers or you don't have often you don't have the same workers on the same construction site so they are they are continuing doing what they're doing but it ha- it from my observations and from people i've spoken to on the ground um it doesn't seem that they're taking it um they're, they're moving any faster than they would have previously if that makes any sense yeah, definitely. And, you know, when we uh, note the fact, Amir, that, you know, it is uh, immigrant workers who are disproportionately dying on construction sites uh, specifically. You spoke to how this affects uh, uh, black workers as well. And uh, according to your reporting, nearly 80 percent of private construction in New York is done by non-union workers. I mean, it just really feels like there's a kind of uh, conflagration of uh, race, class, and labor exploitation that is uh, uh, really at play here uh, when looking at this. And I mean, frankly, it's uh, uh, galling when we look at the fact that clearly, based upon things like uh, race and immigration status and uh, the extent to which people have uh, workers' protection, that basically makes these companies uh, comfortable putting workers' lives on the line. And one would think that this would, you know, be enough to spurn on some real action from those in power. Uh, but as such, it doesn't appear as if we've really seen that. No, it, they, they treat these workers as expendable. Um, they know that that there, there are an uh, infinite amount of workers that are willing to take their place if another worker would refuse to do the job, and they take advantage of that, right? They got this massive reserve army of labor that they can um, they can dip into anytime they have a labor shortage. And you know what's interesting is oftentimes these contractors or their trade organizations that support the continuation of non-union uh, construction in New York, they often point out. They often talk in the language of racial equality and diversity, which is fascinating to me. It, now, traditionally, the construction industry in New York and union construction in New York has generally been a white trade. Um, think about the, our stereotypes we have of, of um, trade union guys, big burly men, usually white. That's kind of the image that still still is with us today, and that's what the image that they continue to sell, even though union construction has been more diverse than it ever has been and it's increasing in its diversity but yet they use the language of the the lack of diversity in the trade unions construction industry and saying what we're doing is giving an opportunity for better for for black and latino um people to have access to good paying jobs in a in the construction field when in reality they're making it uh they're getting paid less than they were would be if they were in the in, in union construction, and it's much more dangerous and less safe. 
Yeah, and I'm also wondering, Amir, I mean, what have we heard, if anything, from the office of uh, Governor uh, Kathy Hochul as it pertains to this issue? I mean, what has been their response to all this? We're looking into it. That was the response. We're looking mm. into it. I don't know how many more people need to die before she stops looking into it and starts signing the bill. Yeah, you know, and short of legislative action, uh, how can non-union workers who have so much in common, uh, you know, uh, aside from uh, uh, the issues that they have with the exploitation and the lack of concern for their health and safety on the job, what can they do to protect themselves uh, and organize in the face of no one doing anything to protect them? They have the right. Um, to organize themselves. They can create safe workplace safety committees, which they have the right to do um, on any given site. They can continue, they can organize, and they don't have to stay non-union. They could be, they can form a union on any of their sites. In fact, many of these workers are forming unions and, and safety committees. Um, I know for a fact that there's a group called the Laundry Workers Center, which is a worker center that um, usually works with people in the laundry industry, but they are working with uh, non-union immigrant construction workers who are also fighting to form um, workplace safety committees and fighting for better pay and safer conditions. Um, there are efforts on many of these sites to form unions, um, and there have been anti-union campaigns on some of these body shops that I mentioned before, that these, uh, these worker, these labor brokers that that often have terrible conditions. There are workers there fighting to form unions. So workers are fighting back, and they are taking um, the fights of the bosses, and they're not waiting for someone in Albany to, to sign a bill. They're, they're, changing the, they're changing their conditions for the better now. Yeah, definitely. You know, that uh, that worker fight back is always so important. And, you know, we were talking about uh, OSHA a moment ago, Amir. And, you know, uh, according to your uh, uh, reporting, one of the workers who died was um, employed by a scaffolding company based in Brooklyn and uh, called Renin Construction Company. And this company has racked up over ten thousand dollars in uh, OSHA violations just in 2018. And so I get the impression that I mean, that there's just no uh, real sort of like oversight or accountability for a lot of these uh, uh, companies in terms of how they're concerned with uh, uh, worker safety. And uh, I was hoping you could sort of uh, uh, say more about that, because, I mean, it just kind of feels like uh, these companies are allowed to play fast and loose, not just with the safeties, but with the lives of these workers. My view of it is the fact, and I've covered I covered a lot of stories with a similar nature. Um, my view is that although there are agencies and organizations in place that do some regulation and some inspections, like OSHA, for example, um, overall, they're, they're, it, we live in a city in New York where there's this emphasis on never-ending growth that the city has to constantly build, build, build. And buildings are getting taller and build, and being built faster and cheaper. And um, any, anything that gets in the way of that is, is putting a roadblock towards progress. And I think that's the view that the system has in general. I don't think this is a view that any single person has, but I think the system does not want to impede that growth so it can accept a certain amount of, of fatalities on these sites as a 
cost of doing business. And especially the fact that these workers are immigrant workers who often go nameless and there's, there's, and they, they don't have much political agency and political power. Um, they, they, um, they are expendable in the name of progress. And I think that's what needs to change. I think we have to have systematic change in the nature of how we, we view construction and how we view the industry and how we treat these workers that are fueling the, that growth model that New York relies on. And, you know, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, things like OSHA uh, violations and, and that kind of thing. I mean, we are talking about multi-billion dollar construction companies. What's the average kind of fine uh, that a, a construction company would face for uh, an OSHA violation compared to the kinds of, of profits they make? And, and therein, I think, might be the problem. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I don't know exactly what the average fine is, fine is, but from all, from all the reporting that I've done, um, $10,000 um, in this particular case seems not to be so far from the norm. Um, they pay a few thousand dollars. Often they can, re- they can fight it. They can reduce it. Open violations could last a year or two years, and, and they, can, they can appeal it. So there's a lot of power... They have a lot of leeway, uh, the construction companies on their end, to, to fight any violations they do get. And when they do get these violations, and if they have to end up paying them, it's probably peanuts compared to what they're making on these sites. Um, and again, it's just the cost of doing business, right? Okay, we're going to get a certain amount of violations. It's almost impossible for any construction site in New York not to get OSHA violations. So it's kind of considered a part of doing business. Um and I think that needs to change, right? They have to shut down these sites. They often shut down the sites only when someone dies and they have to do an investigation. But I don't know what it would take for for these sites to be shut down um, uh, before someone dies. Uh, I, I've heard stories about from workers saying that they have to have they don't they don't have the special scaffolding equipment to hold them up. So what they have to do is they have to tie a rope on a worker who has to climb up. Um, a few, you know, 10 stories high, and then the workers on the ground are holding him. This rudimentary system that they kind of, um, they kind of created on their own. And if I know about it, how come OSHA does it? <laughs> right, right. And, <laughs> and, you know, a moment ago, Amir, you were talking about sort of the philosophy of New York City, right, as a place in this kind of drive for um, endless uh, expansion. And I'm wondering how you see this kind of worker exploitation factoring in uh, to that ethos. I mean, you're talking about uh, a city uh, that, you know, is increasingly becoming uh, too expensive to live in. And it's not alone in that when we talk about um, uh, the rising cost of living here in the United States, of course, an incredibly uh, densely populated place with a lot of gentrification and uh, a displacement of some of these uh, uh, very communities. And it seems to me that 
all of that uh, expansion and development really can't happen uh, without this kind of uh, exploitation and, uh, frankly, just like the whitewashing and uh, ignoring of people's uh, deaths uh, that we're seeing here. And I feel like that that's the side that people don't see. I mean, I, you know, you go to New York City and, you know, depending on what area you're in, you can see the kind of uh, glitzy and glamorous uh, side of things. But, uh, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, suffering and pain and uh, scarcity. And as we're discussing death, uh, that comes along with that. That is, you know, a part of that recipe that uh, those in power don't seem terribly interested in addressing. No, New York is a working class city. We working class people built this city. They're the ones that keep the city running. Immigrant workers in particular are one of the most important components of the working class in New York. And they're the ones that really make the, the history of the working class in New York has been the history of immigrant workers fighting to, to, to make a better life for themselves and fighting for equality and justice. And the illusion of New York is this glitzy place where it's uh, a playground for the rich. That wouldn't have been, that wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for working class people building this city, maintaining this city and running this city. Right. Um, but they're not, they're often being pushed out of the city. They cannot be afford to, they can't afford to live in the buildings that they're even building. Um, they can't afford to eat the meals that they're cooking. They can't afford the stuff that they're selling. And this is the city that, that, that relies on them, but yet they can't enjoy that and they can't take part in that. And that's the real tragedy. And, and this, this strife for never ending growth is really hurting working class people in, in this city. And, I, I think it's it's not sustainable, and I think there's gonna right now maybe we're in this boom and it's definitely gonna bust. And, it, and when it does bust, working class people are the ones that are gonna end up paying the price. And I think that's that's a tragedy. Yeah. Do you see uh, any solidarity among the you know the other groups of people, immigrant groups of people, working class folks who are uh, you know more susceptible to this kind of abuse? Do you see a solidarity among people to uh, uh, be in, you know, support the construction workers in demanding better and safer work conditions? Yes, definitely. I've seen many situations on the ground where people were supporting um, these workers. Local 79, which is the big construction workers union in New York, has made has stepped up its efforts to recruit immigrant workers, to group, recruit formerly incarcerated workers into their apprenticeship programs and to fight to uh, expand unionization in the construction industry. And I, so they're really doing great work on the ground. Um, that probably wasn't the case maybe 30 years ago, but now I think they're really seeing that um, it's important to uh, diversify the union and also fight outside of, of the particular, particular union causes and fight for the struggles of other workers uh, across trades. So that's something that's really hopeful. But it's still not enough. And I think, with you know, when we're dealing with this uh, crisis in, in unaffordability and this crisis in, in workers getting, you know, killed on the job, um, we need far more. You know, New York is, you know, we talk a lot about what's happening in Qatar with the World Cup and the migrant workers that were killed, that died building the World Cup, right, and, and, and sustaining the World Cup. Um, that's happening in New York tenfold, and it's been happening for, for decades. And enough's enough, and I, I, I hope that we see more organizing on the ground that really leads to some, more, some fundamental change.
Definitely. And, you know, Amir, uh, last question uh, here on the show, we've been following pretty closely a lot of the different labor struggles happening inside the United States. And even on the show today, uh, we're talking about um, labor struggles happening inside countries like South Korea. And so I'm just wondering, how do you situate the uh, the plight of workers in New York City, uh, uh, along with what we're seeing across the country, as it seems that there's kind of a renewed uh, attention and energy around uh, uh, both uh, fighting for workers' rights and uh, the importance of unionizing. Well, New York is the belly of the beast, right? Um, we see today, just today, the New York Times is on strike. Uh, there seems to be a greater awareness of um, of the power that workers have of withholding their labor. And that's something that's across the country. And I think oftentimes we focus, and the media has focused on many of the struggles by white workers, um, and we're seeing that with the Starbucks workers, we're seeing that with the New York Times or the different grad school um, struggles that are occurring in universities across the country. And that's great, and that's wonderful, right? But I don't think the media is also looking with the same um, the same uh, enthusiasm at the black and Latino and immigrant workers that are also do are part of this labor strike, that are also fighting back across the country. We're seeing it from workers at the hospitals in California to workers in New Orleans, sanitation, black sanitation workers who went on strike in New Orleans to, to immigrant construction workers fighting for better, for better working conditions. There's also a labor wave occurring uh, in, in, in communities of color and immigrant communities that need to be um, explored it with the same enthusiasm as we're seeing these other labor struggles. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Amir, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back top of the hour. It is Thursday, December 8th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on this show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.Mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time 
each weekday, and we're streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, as I'm sure many of our listeners are aware, uh, WNBA star Brittany Griner has been released from uh, Russian custody uh, following a, a prisoner swap for a Russian arms dealer, Victor Bout. And uh, uh, President Joe Biden uh, signed off on this. And reportedly, this uh, took place in the United Arab Emirates. And uh, Brittany Griner is, in fact, on her way home to her family. Certainly, this is a positive uh, uh, development. Things were definitely not looking good there uh, for a minute, as at a certain point, it seemed like she wasn't much of a priority for either uh, Moscow or Washington. But be that as it may, we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by John Jeter, award-winning journalist and foreign correspondent, radio and television producer, bluesologist and decolonizer, and author of the book, Flat Broke in the Free Market, a Globalization Fleeced Working People. John, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here, Sean. Absolutely. And John, I wanted to start today getting your thoughts on this whole issue with uh, uh, the railroad workers uh, strike and uh, frankly, just the flagrant strike busting uh, maneuvers of the Biden administration, even with the support of some uh, uh, so-called progressives. And, you know, uh, Biden was doing this uh, in the name of being a supposedly, you know, pro labor president, I think just <laughs> highlights a number of contradictions of the political moment that we're in inside the United States as of this moment. But just sort of generally wondering, uh, have you been considering it? Oh, it's been on my mind very much, Sean. I, I think it's a, it's an inflection point. One, I hope that will give the American people writ large, especially the workers, some understanding of what's been going on. Although uh, one of the things that's absent from the conversation is any deep interrogation of this issue by the media, which portrays this, you know, in sort of typical uh, binary terms, labor and Capitol and uh, the, the the government, you know, playing a, a refereeing role, and that's not at all what's happening. What's happening is that we're creeping, we're inching closer and closer to fascism, and this this uh, this dispute and its settling, its handling is evidence of that. We've seen the political class uh, mostly rally behind uh, the. Um, uh, the carriers, uh, the railway carriers, and who are making, who are raking in record profits, uh, and the danger to the workers, not just in terms of their their material compensation, but the danger to the workers, uh, the unsafe uh, uh, conditions, and the 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 um, uh, detrimental effect of not having sick days when you perform a job, which puts you out in the elements, uh, which exposes you to uh, you know this this flu virus and the and the uh, uh, COVID virus is still uh, very much lingering around. Um, it, it's really breathtaking to see the 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 way in which our government, which is supposed to referee these these situations, right? They're not supposed to take a side necessarily. They're supposed to referee, particularly when you're talking about something like the railroad, which you know we see as providing a, a service that's that is. Uh, 
instrumental to the to the functioning of our economy, and that's true, right? Uh, but but uh, it's not supposed to just sort of back one side over the other without taking into account issues of fairness. And so this, you know, um, the the fact that these workers don't have um, sick leave um, is is really very telling, and I hope it's one that starts to really trigger. Um, I mean, we're seeing, as your last guest was saying, we're seeing a sort of a revival of the labor movement. But I'm hoping this is really the the straw that broke the camel that breaks the camel's back, uh, because it's so blatant, it's so flagrant, it's such a it's so uh, reminiscent, so redolent of. Um, you know, the 1930s before we actually saw the New Deal and uh, what one European visitor uh, characterized when he came to the United States, he characterized the United States as an employer's paradise. We are an employer's paradise once again, uh, and that's not sustainable, right? That is not sustainable. So this railroad strike is really, you know, the, the news media uh, never, even at its best, will never tell you, well, this is a very important moment. Um, and when they do tell you that, it's usually not a very important moment. This is a very important moment uh, in American history and uh, what happens going forward. And, of course, the media is not uh, really interrogating and telling you just how important it is. But it is important. I hope people will take their cues from um, uh, the organizing that is going on and understand that if we are to sort of break free from this morass that we're in, we're going to have to double down on labor organizing, labor labor militancy, because that's another thing, too, that the media has not talked much about. And I don't know the particular story of the, I think the Teamsters that represent uh, the railroad workers, but but I'm guessing that there is much turmoil, much tension between the leadership, uh, which is uh, in bed with the Democratic Party, and the rank and file workers who want what's owed them, uh, who want what they deserve, what they have worked very hard for, and that's the story of the labor movement over the last uh, century. Really, is this division between the rank and file and the leadership, which sees itself uh, wrongheadedly as a the third. A partner in this tripartite alliance between businesses and uh, the Democratic Party, especially. Um, and, and so, uh, again, that's something that we really need to talk about in terms of strategizing a way forward for, labor, for organized labor um, and, and the working class. And, you know, John, I think the way U.S. media has framed uh, the congressional intervention uh, to stop a rail strike it is is as important a part of this conversation as the organizing that needs to happen uh, and grow uh, around this intervention. Because, you know, of course, you, you know, the media is always talking about how the strike uh, would have caused uh, shortages, spiked prices, halting factory production, disrupted commuter rail services for up to seven million travelers a day and uh, the transportation of 60 300 carloads of food and farm products a day, among other items. And, you know, Biden's response is that, you know, thanks to the bill Congress passed, we've spared the country that catastrophe. Like, so this entire issue has not been centered around the workers' demands for just being able to have paid days off to go to the doctor take their kids to the doctor, to not be fired for taking leave. You know, just the, the, this conversation is not centered around the workers' needs, but the media has framed it as it's the workers against the economy. And, and I'm wondering how you see that being 
as important as the conversation that needs to have that we need to have about organizing, how important is that that this is how this fight uh, for workers' rights was framed? It's pivotal. It's uh, the, the you know this, um, and I'm, I'm plugging my book, which I hope will come out next year. This is a class war. It's a class struggle, right? It is it is labor versus capital, right? Uh, the the reason that the 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 one percent, the wealthiest one percent of this nation, has been kicking our heinies for the last fifty years is because they've been able to isolate certain segments of the labor force, of the workforce, of organized labor, particularly. Uh, and you knew this was coming, black people, right? Uh, I would love to know the demographics of the of the of the um, the railroad uh, unions, right? Um, I, I'm curious, and I don't know this for a fact, but I'm curious, you know, uh, is there is there disproportionately uh, Latino and or black? Uh, because they they seem to have been. I don't know how they have gotten to this point without uh, having. Uh, I mean, it seems a minimum of seven sick days. I mean, 15 just seems the norm of every job I've had, and I've had some pretty crappy jobs. But uh, seven, at the very least, when we're talking about 2022 and negotiating the next contract, and I wonder if they've been able to, uh, because the, because the, the leadership is so much in bed with the Democratic Party, that they've been able to isolate the rank-and-file workers from the rest of the economy, um, from the from the rest of the workers, and so yet yeah, this this narrative of of the of the of the workers um, actually being the enemy of a functioning economy is nonsense, right? Again, that that again is part of the strategy of the oligarchs, right? Which is to uh, uh, alienate us from the information that can help us inform our democracy. What 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 this what this economy needs? Why it's so ailing? It's because we don't have enough buying power. We have prices going up, and people. People aren't making enough money. Even before this inflation hit, people weren't making enough money to sustain the economy, to to buy stuff, right? To buy goods and services. And so, um, you know, that's what we need. And so this this and of course, paid days off are it, it is. Uh, it is extra money in your pocket because you get paid for days when you take off because you're sick or because your kid's sick. So that is extra money in your pocket. So th- this this narrative, these warring narratives, is the the greatest weapon that either side has in this class war. Right when 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 we the people can sort of tell the story of the workers. Right, our suffering from our point of view from the ground up. That's when you will see things turn. And let me just say this: I think this is so interesting, and I don't know what's going to happen uh, because the New York Times, the, the 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 workers, the reporters, particularly the editorial staff, would be hard to to replace. Uh, even though I don't think they're particularly good, but they're they're probably the best best thing going in a U.S. news media. But I am very curious to see. Uh, what kind of support uh, the the New York Times workers get, that the editorial staff gets? Uh, I don't know if they've gone on strike or they're planning to go on strike, but but if they go on strike, what kind of support they get from the general public? Because even people who don't keep up with it intuit the 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 distance between the news media, how the news media is working on behalf of capital, just as the politicians are. And I wonder if they'll get support from the average workers in the street, black or white. Frankly, uh, that would be very interesting to see. And it, and it, and, and also, it will tell you something about the direction we're going to go in uh, as I think the economy worsens, which I think it inevitably will over the next few years, uh, and and people struggle increasingly uh, for a greater a greater stake in this economy. Uh, it will be interesting to see if we start to come together or if these fissures in our uh, in our population become uh, clearer and clearer. 
Yeah, and you mentioned the uh, New York Times uh, employees. Um, I'm <clears throat> looking at a, a tweet from Breakthrough News from about an hour ago that said that uh, the employees actually walked out and were rallying outside. And I'm actually curious your thoughts about that uh, whole situation, John, particularly as someone who is um, a longtime journalist, someone who has worked for uh, major news platforms and what you make of this labor struggle at, you know, uh, uh, frankly, uh, the number one newspaper in the whole of the country. I, I just I find it fascinating. Uh, I, mean, I don't keep up the New York Times very much anymore. I don't find it particularly interesting, which is really um, a spectacular statement for me to make. Since I, for probably about twenty years, it was the first thing I did in the morning was read the New York Times, even when I worked for the Washington Post. Um, but I think this is really very telling, and, and it's interesting too. Um, I, I consider myself a bit of an amateur historian, I guess, about these things. And what I think a lot of people don't know is that you know you could trace back the beginning of this neoliberal era to a lot of things. But one of the contenders, I would argue, is the 19th the 1975 pressman strike at the Washington Post. When the pressman walked out, um, they did damage some machines, but the, the damage to the machines, um, the, the, I think the Post put in something like $2 million, and later uh, some experts came in and said, no, it was more about $15,000. But that, that part of that narrative, right, of the workers as dangerous, as subversive, as violent, right? Uh, and Catherine Graham, you know, and I, I think it's an arguable point whether or not the United States is better off with or without uh, Catherine Graham and her story. I do think she made uh, the, the Washington Post into a force in the United States media landscape in a way that her husband, neither her husband nor her father could do. And that's not to be belittled in terms of understanding the power of women or the agency of women. But at the same time, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan copied uh, her union busting. Uh, of the of the pressman's uh, strike uh, with his um, uh, the Patco strike when he uh, uh, fired the Patco workers striking air, air traffic controllers that was modeled on Catherine Graham's Washington Post strike in 1975 or her union busting of that strike and another thing that's very interesting about that strike that that uh, again going back to the New York Times strike now whether or not people will support it um, Washington D.C. at that time Chocolate City it is no longer certainly. But back then it was Chocolate City. Catherine Graham took great pains to portray the striking workers as racist. And you could argue that they were. So there weren't any or there weren't many black uh, pressmen at that time. Uh, they had some workers who came in and did something with the paper on the weekends, but they weren't part of the union. And she portrayed them basically as racist. And she portrayed her union busting as an effort to uh, hire blacks. And her first hire, very cynically, was of a black man, right? But at lower wages. And, and that strike, to wrap this up, that strike also was the beginning of the media uh, becoming uh, uh, marching in lockstep with their investors. And what I mean by that is that um, uh, the, you know, the media in this country has never been great um, and maybe not even good, right? But there certainly was a certain independence leading up to that strike. Catherine Graham was at that time, she had just started to get private investment. Warren Buffett had joined the board. And that strike was intended to tell, they were making money hand over fist, but, but less money than they had made a few years previous. That, that was intended, uh, that strike was intended, or that strike busting was intended to tell her investors, we're going to do whatever it takes for you to get maximum return on your investment. And that meant that the media was from that point out mar marching in lockstep, taking orders, really, from 
from their investors. And that's why we see the media, partly, that's not the only reason. That's partly why we see a media that is so compromised now in New York Times that is so, uh, so estranged from the workers in New York City, both black and white. Um, and, and, and so this strike uh, in New York City is, is really, you know, it, we'll see, but it could be uh, the counterpoint to the 1975 strike. It could be the response all these years later to the 1975 Washington Post strike in which workers start to come back together. I, I, don't, I don't really have any confidence that will happen in the immediate future, but, but it might be the, this might be the trigger point. It could be. Uh, or we could just begin, we, just, we could just, you know, uh, divide the wide even further before it finally starts to come back together. Yeah. And, you know, we talk all the time uh, on the show, John, (coughs) excuse me, about how, you know, uh, the mainstream press in the United States. And I often point out that, you know, although the U.S. claims to have a free press, it certainly doesn't. You know, corporate interest controls the press here in the U.S. Um, We often reflect on the fact about how these platforms serve as a bullhorn for imperialism. And they're they're a great aid in uh, the effort to, you know, manufacture consent for uh, whatever war uh, uh, the U.S. wants to engage in amongst its people. Right. But it seems like a similar piece, frankly, when we talk about um, uh, the funding and things like that, that you're uh, uh, discussing. And so we see uh, these major platforms like The New York Times basically going along with um, the line of big capital and standing with the bosses in substance. Um, against these workers. And what I think it reveals is something that I don't think a lot of people in uh, the U.S. really think about, and that's the class character of media and why it is that we get these narratives about workers and uh, people's struggles and social movements, both inside and outside the country, that we do. But I think it's important to to understand that aspect of it, because without it, then it seems like we fundamentally misunderstand this uh, this 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 information, this coverage that we're subject to on a constant basis. It's a class character, something that uh, it's it's insidious in that it's invisible to so many Americans. I'll give you just a, uh, I think a perfect analogy, a perfect sort of a symbol of the class character of the press. Uh, my first job in journalism, and God, I hate to date myself and show myself to be such a dinosaur, but it was at the Minneapolis Star Tribune. I started uh, on August 10th of 1987, three days after I graduated uh, from uh, uh, Florida and m uh, and it was a closed shop, by which I mean I had no choice but to join the union. I guess I could get out of it, but it would take a lot of effort, uh, and it would earn the enmity of my coworkers who frowned upon that um, uh, free riding. I would basically be entitled to their benefits, but that was out paying for it. Uh, and so it was a closed shop. My second job, uh, Detroit Free Press, 1990, 1991, late 1991, a closed shop. You join the newspaper, you are part of the union. And, and, and both jobs, I don't recall, I think it's a, at the at the free press, I didn't pay a dime for health insurance. I mean, the benefits were unimaginable these days, right? My third job, and I had a conversation with him. I was, I was, I was reminded of this. Um, I saw a guy who looked like the, one of the union reps at the Post when I first started back in 1993. And we had had a discussion where he asked me when I was going to join the union. And I was young and maybe not too bright, you would argue. And I thought, well, what do you mean? I'm at the paper. I'm in the union. And he, he made it clear to me, no, 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 you have to actually join the union. It's not a closed shop. I didn't understand that at that time because the first two papers I worked at, it was a closed shop. You you worked there, you're in the union. 
the, the you know, uh, the close shop is a victory, a huge victory for the union organ, the labor organizing movement coming out of the New Deal, coming after World War II, where they got so many of these uh, plants where you joined, you were a member of the union, which of course strengthens your hand. And of course, the, the response, the neoliberal response, you know, which we began in the early 70s, and really we could date back again to the Washington Post 1975 press right, was the uh, right to work states, right? In which you could not have a closed shop. You could not have unions that mandated that employees uh, join the union. And so, yeah, the, 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 the collusion, the close-knit relationship between newspapers and between the, the anti-union, the union-busting activities uh, their investors, right? I, I mean, I don't, I don't know this for a fact, but I would imagine that um, the many of the stockholders in the New York Times uh, own stocks in the defense industries, which are making money hand over fist in Ukraine. Um, uh, I, I would imagine when I was in Argentina and got in trouble for writing about Argentina's debt troubles, which were uh, really bankrupting the country, I would imagine that part of the reason I got into trouble with my editors is because uh, many of the stockholders, some of the stockholders for sure, owned some of those Argentine bonds, and they had a vested interest in seeing them repaid. Uh, so, yeah, I, you know, it's just, it's, it's uh, who's the author, the woman, she wrote the, the book, The End of Bias, I think, or The Age of Bias, I can't remember, but she said, you know, uh, a lie repeated over over and over again doesn't become invisible, uh, doesn't become a lie, doesn't become the truth, becomes invisible. And that's what we have when we talk about organized labor, the class struggle, and also uh, the, the, the racial element, the racism that, that weakens the organized labor movement in the United States in a way that other countries don't, don't have an experience. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by John Jeter. And, uh, John, there's uh, been some interesting uh, developments in terms of U.S. President Joe Biden's uh, approval rating following the midterm elections. Of course, I suppose since the uh, Georgia race was called for Raphael Warnock, I guess they're like officially over now. But according to a new poll published by the Associated Press and the NORC Center for Public Affairs, uh, Biden has about uh, 43 percent of Americans still supporting him, which is the exact same number that that same uh, poll found that was taken in October. And, and, and it's an interesting sort of note, even understanding, you know, the, the different dynamics with, with polling and things like that. If we look at what has actually happened as a result of the midterms and that the Democrats hold the slim majority in the Senate, Republicans hold a slim majority in the House. And that's just 
kind of where we are. And there wasn't a red wave as predicted by uh, the Republicans and the the Democrats saw fit through to, you know, throw a ticker tape parade because they didn't get absolutely demolished, uh, you know, because they didn't lose both houses. And they felt that this that, you know, they considered this uh, uh, a victory. And so, you know, even in looking at sort of uh, uh, the aftermath of the midterms at this point and what it means for what I would argue is a political crisis that's deepening in the United States, not just, you know, specifically dealing with midterms, but this whole issue with the Morvey Harper and the attack on uh, uh, one person, one vote, uh, you know, racist voter suppression, all of these sorts of things that are uh, happening all at once alongside what I would also consider a social uh, crisis in the United States, which is directly connected to the political and the economic one. But I mean, what do you sort of make of uh, where not only the Biden administration, but really sort of the political mainstream in general? Like, what do you make of where uh, uh, that whole aspect of things sit uh, uh, at this moment as things continue to develop here stateside? We're um, we're in the midst of a democratic crisis, a crisis of democracy in the United States. There's no uh, ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I don't care what that, that poll says. I'm, I'm not trusting a poll. I've been trusting a polls for several years now since the whole the Brexit thing and uh, uh, the polls show Hillary Clinton. I think on the on the eve of election day, winning uh, the race against Donald Trump handily. I, I mistrust polls. I'm not sure if it's intentional or not, but I don't think it really measures uh, public sentiment very well. But be that as it may. Uh, uh, if Joe Biden is at 43 percent now, I, I bet you he won't be there in July. Uh, and I don't think he's going to rise because these things will take a toll. You can't continue to do the things he's done to the American people, like vis-a-vis this railroad strike, uh, vis-a-vis his, uh, his, his mockery of, of, of both um, uh, defunding the police uh, or, or any kind of police reform, any kind of real police reform. While we see, we can see daily, anyone who, who watches YouTube can see daily the kind of both microaggressions and violent attacks on black, by police and police, uh, uh, white people acting as surrogates to the police. We can see these things daily. So, uh, and then of course there's this, there's no discussion of reparations either by Joe Biden or the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, and, and of course the blacks, blacks are the, um, most diehard constituency of the Democratic Party. So there's a real crisis of democracy. It's in the Republican Party, too. But the Republican Party, I think, uh, because of Donald Trump, uh, uh, they are actually more responsive to their base, which is rabidly racist, which is uh, very much uneducated and misinformed. And Donald Trump is the response to those people. Uh, I mean, look at uh, – I don't think I'm being – particularly judgmental by saying that Herschel Walker may be uh, the dumbest uh, candidate for public office that I've seen in my 57 years on this planet, right? And he came within, what, two percentage points of beating the Democratic incumbent, who outspent him, by the way, and I only found this out recently, who outspent him by by two to one. Uh, that's extraordinary. The Herschel Walker, could, Herschel Walker, for God's sake, who should be uh, a, a billboard for the uh, traumatic brain injury suffered by uh, NFL players. I don't, I don't think he was very smart before he played the NFL. Um, uh, and yet the Democrats could barely eke out a victory in Georgia, a state that is the demographics are changing. They should actually be uh, running away with races in Georgia, the Democrats could be, but they're not responding to the people. So we have a democratic crisis. I fully believe I don't have any inside information. I could be wrong. This is just my guess as an old black man who's seen 
things happen in this country and kind of sees the direction we're going in. I fully expect Trump to be reelected. I have my guess is he would uh, pick this woman, Carrie Lake, as his running mate, which would be a brilliant move, particularly because I think uh, they're going to be running against, I think, uh, Michelle Obama and Gavin Newsom. Again, just my guess, but that's my guess. And, and I think that Trump will beat um, Michelle Obama uh, and Gavin Newsom, in part because, while I think it might gin out the, um, the Michelle Obama might be able to gin up the black uh, women in particular, and, and probably black men will vote for her as well, um, or at least there'll be some no noticeable drop-off in turnout if Michelle Obama leaves the ticket. Uh, I don't think white women will vote for Michelle Obama. I really don't. I don't think uh, after eight years of Obama, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. And so uh, I fully expect Donald Trump to be the president. I, 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 I see the conditions on the ground. I'm not predicting that this is what is going to happen. I'm saying the conditions on the ground are very similar to what happened in Germany in the 1930s with the, with the fall of the Weimar Republic and the rise of the Nazis, right? That, and you can see that even in Europe. You can see the same right-wing turn. There was a, just a, an attempted coup in Germany just yesterday, I think, or two days ago, by these right-wing nutcases trying to uh, turn, uh, uh, overturn the government. And let me say this lastly, too. And, and part of the reason I think Donald Trump will win, I, you know, Clearly, I have no contact with Donald Trump, and I'm certainly not an advisor. But my guess is that he will run against the Ukraine war, and that is going to be gold for the Republicans. If he does that, uh, which will pit him against people in his own party, of course, but if he does that, he will run away with this election in 2024, all things being even, because this war is not popular. People understand this very simple math of Ukrainians getting everything they want. And railroad railroad workers in this country can't even get a day of sick leave. Yeah, I, I, I gotta I gotta tell you that the thought of Michelle Obama and and Gavin Newsom, but Michelle Obama more than Gavin Newsom running for president and vice president. It's just I, I wouldn't have come up with that. And and I'm I'm wondering why you think they would be the candidates? Because I, 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 I'm, I'm really curious to hear how you came at, at, at the conclusion that that the Democratic nominees will be Michelle Obama. Because remember, Biden said he's running again. That's what he said. Whether medical science actually bears that out. <laughs> Right, right. I don't know. I, but. I, I, don't, I don't think Joe, Joe is making that decision. I think the donors are making that decision. And I do have, this is some inside information that I do have. Uh, the donors, the people with the money, Wall Street, the people who uh, supply Obama with all of his staff uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in his first election, his first term, uh, those people are actively talking about Michelle Obama. And they're talking dollar figures. Now, I have that on good authority. People have told me that. these donors 
uh, you know, who I've not spoken to directly, but who I've heard people who have talked to them. I believe they are pressuring her. They're telling her she needs to do it for the good of the country. And I and my guess from what I know about Obama uh, is that he's pressuring her, too. It would feed his ego, especially because they have this rivalry with the Clintons. You know, the Clintons right. didn't do that. They yeah. Could, they couldn't elect. They couldn't get it. And they know the Clintons and, the, and the Obamas hate each other for good reason, right? You know, the Clintons are rabidly racist, and the and the Obamas want to be white. So uh, you know, there's there's good reason for them to have a rivalry. So this and, and lastly, this is what I what this is what I do know. Uh, Ob- uh, Michelle uh, Obama comes from the South Side of Chicago, uh, and I know the South Side of Chicago, and I know there is this uh, uh, Negro no noblesse oblige there, right? Uh, other than just the poverty. And she comes from that. She comes from her father, Fraser Robinson, was very much involved in the election of Harold Washington. Now, I don't think his politics were what the Obamas are, but I do think there's still this sense of, of, of you know, what, what is, you know, respectability politics lifting while you climb. And I think Michelle Obama, uh, who I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to be judgmental in this moment. I don't think she has a particularly sophisticated view of government or politics or ideology. Uh, economy or politics at all, but I do think uh, that she believes that she is part of that talented tenth, and it is her responsibility to um, to help the downtrodden blacks understand, you know, that their 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 lot is with capitalism and white liberals. Uh, and so I, I just expect her to run. I would be surprised, not shocked, but I would be surprised if she doesn't run. I'd be surprised if she's not the nominee. I think if she does run, it will be a signal that even though Joe Biden might might run as well, it would be a signal that the donors have told her, you know, we're backing you. We got your back. You're going to have all this money, um, and and uh, you're 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 our you are our man, so to speak, in the White House. So uh, that's just my you know my guess. Uh, but you know, I'm. I'm I'm not Negro Davis, but I'm right a whole lot. Yeah. And, you know, uh, speaking of, you know, from the uh, Republican side of things, John, I've, I've been asking people this is, you know, well, what do you make of the whole uh, Ron DeSantis aspect of things? Because already, I mean, even emanating from the uh, uh, midterms, it just became very clear that there were elements within the Republicans that were leaning towards uh, uh, DeSantis and, and in some cases openly and vocally saying that the party should not uh, uh, nominate Trump for 2024. Now, I tend to agree that he still has a, a good chance, although it, it does, at least, you know, for me, I do feel like Trump has lost some footing here, at least in the time since uh, uh, the January 6th the attack on the Capitol. And so, I, I mean, what do you, because it seems to me that Ron DeSantis would bring the same level of, you know, just reactionary everything uh, that Trump would. But, you know, with a certain level of polish that, you know, the the, the mainstream elements within uh, uh, the party might be more comfortable with, because it was always Trump's presentation that was a problem with people, I think, both, you know, in both uh, uh, major parties. But I mean, how do you what do you make of that uh, element of things as at least it seems pretty clear to me that DeSantis is angling for a run here at some point? I will I will admit to you, I at first thought it was going to be Trump and DeSantis. And I realized only uh, on the election day how much they hate each other. I had not known that heretofore. And of course, uh, then again, you know, DeSantis being from Florida, that would not be helpful to Donald Trump. And plus, you know, he's a man who clearly holds a grudge, so he's not going to pick DeSantis as his running mate. But I'm going to tell you, I just, I think DeSantis, who I think clearly has imitated Trump, 
in a political sense, right? But he's not Trump. And I think the same things that, that alienates Trump from the, 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 the sort of traditional Republicans, the, the business Republicans, right, uh, is what turns on his base, the working class Republicans, the, the people who follow Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, they're the ones who love him. They're the ones who elected him. They're the ones who are rabid fans of his. I don't think the census can, can reach those same people. I'll, I'll just give you one example. I suspect, and again, I don't have conversations with these people. I don't know any of these people. This is just my my read. I suspect that DeSantis would back the Ukraine war, that he would back Zelensky, right? And that's the kind of thing that I think gets Donald Trump over the top. Um, you know, if even the right wing Republicans, you know, they are rabidly racist, but they don't want any they don't want any parts of this war, this proxy war in Ukraine. They don't understand why we're sending all this money to uh, Ukraine when they don't have health care, they don't have uh, dental care. They, you know, uh, uh, I mean, it's just ridiculous. And so uh, I, I think, you know, it, it's really the same thing with both parties. But the Republicans, I think, have a few. They have one ace up their sleeve. Now, I don't know. You know, after Trump, what would happen? I don't know. I think both parties are going to fall out of favor because neither one is answering the needs of their constituents. But I think the Republicans have a little bit more wiggle room at this point than do the Democrats. Who just the, the Democrats just simply don't have any answers. They simply are not who they say they are. The Republicans, yeah, I think their most rabid fans would say. I don't know. Let's see. You know, Trump, maybe not these other guys, maybe not Mitch McConnell, but Trump seems to be our guy. Trump's to be, Trump seems to be speaking to our needs. Again, Sean, this is my guess. You know, I don't know, but this is my best guess, and it's kind of what I'm expecting to see unfold over the next uh, year and a half, I guess. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. John Jeter is here. And John, we were just talking about these uh, uh, different ructions happening inside the uh, Republican Party as it concerns Donald Trump and uh, his bid for the Republican Party's nomination in 2024. We were also talking about uh, uh, Herschel Walker a moment ago, uh, the CEO of CTE or uh, who, who I like to say is uh, the only person in American politics in worse cognitive decline than Joe Biden himself. But uh, following that uh, uh, loss and uh, following the victory of Raphael Warnock in Georgia, and I'm looking at a piece here from The Hill, uh, Senate Republican Whip uh, John Thune uh, said, quote, whether we talk about it or not, Trump was going to be a factor. And for a lot of the folks that he endorsed, he insisted the predicate for that endorsement be that the 2020 election was stolen and that's a losing argument. His obsession with the 2020 election became an albatross and a real liability for people who are running, especially in swing states. 
Uh, and I think the same goes for Mitt Romney, senator from uh, Utah, who I think has uh, been a critic of Trump for some time, uh, was quoted saying, President Trump has a big impact on the primary and the general. If you get endorsed by him in the primary, you're likely to win. If you're endorsed by him in the general, you're likely to lose. For someone who actually wants to win an election, getting endorsed by President Trump is the kiss of death. And so this is Mitt Romney. And we've seen Paul Ryan say a similar thing. As a matter of fact, Paul Ryan was the first a uh, prominent Republican that I saw say uh, unequivocally and explicitly that the uh, party should not nominate Trump. And, and, you know, this, this was uh, an aspect that I actually meant to touch on in terms of what Trump's involvement, what his endorsement uh, in the midterm may have meant for some of these Republican candidates. And so, I mean, how do you see that aspect of things, John? I, I just, I, yeah, I'm, I'm very much aware of people like Mitt Romney, but that, that I, I almost, I don't know. If I was Trump, I would almost welcome that kind of criticism from someone like Mitt Romney, who is such a dead fish. I mean, uh, <laughs> such a uh, such a bloodless, soulless cipher on the political system. And I just think that, you know, uh, that almost acts as an endorsement to Trump's people, right, uh, for whom uh, 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 Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan and uh, all these critics of Trump, they hold no sway as far as I know. I mean, uh, you know, uh, could Trump lose? Uh, I think he certainly could lose, right? But I just don't see, uh, I don't see, I don't see the Democrats turning out their base uh, in, the, in the presidential election as much as Trump will turn out his base. In other words, I thought the 2020 was a one-shot deal. I initially was suspicious of the of the election myself, right? I just didn't see Joe Biden who I remember from the late 80s running for president and just not generating any kind of buzz within the Democratic Party. I was suspicious that he could now generate this record turnout. I do believe that the hatred of Trump was such that he did win. I believe that he did win. I believe it was a legitimate election despite the voter repression, uh, which would have, of course, worked in um, the Democrats' favor anyway if that had been somehow addressed. Uh, so I do believe he won, he won, but I'm not sure that there are enough Republicans who believe that. And, and beyond that, even if they, I think a lot of them, many of them, and again, I say this, you know, it's kind of speculation. I don't talk to these people very often. Uh, I see them sometimes when I'm flipping the channel. I hear them and I kind of, you know, look for things that can kind of give me some real inform inside information on their inner thoughts uh, and their inner fears. But I, I think that it won't matter to them come 2024. Even if he did lose, they're going to think this is an opportunity to get our guy back in the White House. This is just what I suspect as an old black man who knows this country of nothing else. Um, and, and I just think um, I, I just think that the, 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 the Democrats just don't have anything to show for, or they won't have anything to show for their four years in the White House and their two years of controlling uh, both houses of Congress and uh, uh, the White House. And then, you know, with, with uh, Warnock winning now and them controlling the Senate outright, uh, I don't think they're going to have anything to show for it in two years to say, hey, you should vote for us and not Trump. I just don't think they're going to be able to say that. And I think as unsophisticated as the average American voter is, um, they're not crazy. They understand when something hasn't worked out in their favor. And this economy, I do believe, is about to go into a tailspin. Yeah, they're not Subliterate like Herschel Walker is, at least. I don't know where exactly. that came from, but 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 I love it. I, I mean, I, I do wonder. I think the Democrats have been putting a, a lot of stock into something tripping Trump up. Uh, you know, 
to to derail his 2024 um, uh, campaign uh, bid. And and I, I feel like some people have made a big deal about uh, the the conviction against Trump's companies that came out of uh, New York just a couple of days ago. I, and I wonder and, and there have been the revelations, I guess, that more classified documents were found um, it somewhere on Trump's properties that he shouldn't have had that that should have been turned over to uh, the White House archive, archivists or whatever. Do you see any of these kind of orbiting scandals as as uh, Trump and his corporations, his companies are called on the carpet for something as they're, you know, held to task for whatever? I mean, the companies are uh, facing up to one point six million dollars in fines. Who knows what kind of uh, uh, accountability is going to come with all of these documents that have been uh, found that he shouldn't have had when he left the White House. Do you think any of that is going to have any impact on, you know, people kind of seeing him as you know, a bull in a china shop? He's too unpredictable. He's almost radioactive. Let's not let's not do that again. I really think, Jackie, uh, I remember when I was uh, uh, the Chicago bureau chief at the Washington Post, and I would travel a lot throughout the Midwest. And it was in the last, uh, like, 97, 98, when Clinton was going through his impeachment hearing, and that was a big deal inside the Beltway, but not in the Midwest. It wasn't a big deal in Peoria. And every few months, my editor would call me and say, hey, we want you to go out and just, you know, take the temperature of people about what happened with Trump, what happened with uh, Clinton today. And I would say, you know, and I was a newspaper man at that time, I'd say, oh, is that still going on? And then I would go interview people, and they would say the exact same thing. Oh, oh, is that still going on? I would even go to Republican enclaves. They would say, you know, we hate Clinton, but not for that, right? Now, you can say, you know, either that's right or that's wrong. I don't know, but I think it's the reality. And I suspect that's what's going on now. So to answer your question in that long-winded way, I would say I don't think it's going to have an impact. If anything, I think it's going to make, it's going to make Trump a martyr. I think they're going to see the political system, both Democrats and Republicans, ganging up, up on Trump because they think Trump is their hero, and they think that, the, that this effort to block him is manufactured. They don't care about classified documents. They don't care about if it's, if it's uh, his company, you know, dodge taxes or whatever. They don't, they just don't care about that. Uh, and the other thing I will say, uh, again, I, I, I just fully expect this to happen. I think this Hunter Biden investigation that the Republicans are going to put on, I think it's going to have traction. I think it could have a lot of traction. I think the question of influence peddling by Joe Biden's crackhead son, and I'm not saying that for the judgment, that's what he was uh, or is. I don't know if he still has a drug problem or not. But he was a crackhead, which I think will rub a lot of black people the wrong way, too, given Joe Biden's role in uh, uh, sanctioning uh, black people who uh, have drug problems. But I think this is going to, to bear fruit. Uh, how much fruit, I don't know. Uh, I would not, I would certainly not be surprised to see Hunter Biden go to jail. Uh, I think Joe Biden uh, uh, is anticipating he might get some trouble, too, because he hired lawyers to defend him in this in this in the potentiality of this case, I think almost a year ago. So I think that's gonna bear fruit. I think that's gonna have much more impact with the American people, particularly Republicans, in 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 jetting up support, more support for Trump and against the Democrats. I, I just uh that, that Hunter Biden thing is 
I mean, that's really explosive. And I don't, I'm not a big fan of Elon Musk. I'm not a big fan of Twitter. I'm not a big fan of Matt Taibbi. Uh, certainly not that, that crazy woman he's worked in the New York Times who's reporting on the, these Twitter uh, uh, revelations about their suppression of the Hunter Biden story. But I think that's going to, I think that's going to bear real fruit. And that's going to be very hurtful to the Democrats' chances of retaining uh, the White House. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not out of the question. And honestly, I can say that, you know, a couple of years ago or whenever it was that the whole issue around Hunter Biden first came about, I didn't really understand it. And I didn't really recognize like why it was relevant, just kind of brushed it off. But since it's sort of uh, resurfaced here lately, things become a lot more clear. And uh, I do think that it very well could be something that uh, harms uh, the Democrats chances for victory in uh, 2024. Should Joe Biden uh, uh, become the nominee once again? which, you know, by all um, appearances, at least from his standpoint, he seems like he's uh, uh, intent on doing that. And and so just having a look at sort of how all of this has been unfolding, and I also think what you said a moment ago about uh, Trump, you know, should he, you know, well, not should he, because he's announced that he was run, but during his run that he may, you know, uh, emphasize this issue of um, uh, uh, pulling back some of the funding from Ukraine. I, I think it's reasonable to, to think that as well, as that's sort of a, a popular narrative amongst uh, certain elements of Trumpists. Now, I don't believe they're genuine in that uh, at all. Uh, as we know, you know, Democrats and Republicans sort of have, um, you know, they're in lockstep in terms of supporting and will, or more so maintaining imperialism. It's just that in this moment, the Democrats want to focus on Russia and the Republicans seem to want to focus uh, chiefly on China, although both parties are certainly interested in going after both countries. But, you know, these are sort of the uh, some of the contradictions and conflicts happening in elements of the ruling class that I uh, uh, think that we need to keep in mind. And speaking of Ukraine. Um, I was just looking at a piece uh, recently from the Washington Post. Uh, it was another poll that was saying that, you know, support for this. And this is even in the, the headline, the indefinite U.S. aid to Ukraine is starting to slip some. Although, you know, uh, according to the, this polling, um, I believe the survey was conducted by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Um, even though most people uh, still seem to support uh, the sending of arms and economic aid, we are starting to see it taper off some. And to me, that makes a lot of sense just in terms of the general feeling that you get amongst uh, people in the United States, um, as we don't really see any relief for uh, the conditions of poor working and oppressed people. Uh, indeed, as we uh, started out discussing, this government won't even support workers trying to get sick leave. But yet and still, uh, uh, the, the war chest is bottomless uh, uh, as it pertains to Ukraine and I would argue the U.S. Uh, a war machine in general. And so, you know, as we sort of see how these next two years play out, John, it seems clear that uh, uh, the Ukraine war very well may continue to uh, play a serious role here, you know, assuming that it will uh, continue to go on. I, I, well, I think it will continue. Uh, I think that uh, uh, Putin has changed his strategy from what I was listening to uh, Scott Ritter uh, last night, uh, uh, you know, the, the strategy is they're taking a go-slow go approach because they're a little bit nervous about whether or not NATO will uh, intervene. Uh, and so they're taking a go-slow go approach, but I think it will continue. Uh, I think that uh, I think it's going to have devastating consequences. I think we're already seeing uh, some very real 
uh, unrest in Europe, in France, in the UK. Uh, the UK is just about to, it seems like it's about to implode uh, under the Tory leadership. Germany is facing some real problems in terms of its energy supplies and also the, the, the political unpopularity of the ruling coalition there. So I think there's going to be some real problems. I think that's going to drift across the, pro- the pond here to the United States because our economy is going. We are in a recession. I don't care what the uh, you know what the Democrats say or what the, the last GDP report said. We are in a recession. How would we not be? How would we be uh, making more money now than we were a year ago? We don't have any new industries. We don't have any. We're not exporting anything. So of course we're. Uh, in a recession, whether or not the numbers show it or not is irrelevant, right? The economy is shrinking because there's no buying power. There's no buying power because uh, everyone is so indebted, they don't have any more money to buy new goods and services. So this is a problem. And of course, this is something that that Joe Biden, even though I don't think the average uh, American uh, understands it this way, but Joe Biden could have helped the economy by actually uh, signing an executive order to to provide real debt relief to college borrowers, uh, by you know granting uh, 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 siding with uh, uh, the railroad railroad workers in this labor dispute, these are the kind of things that can give people buying power. A public option, even if they're not going to do Medicare for all, they could do a public option. Um, you know, and these are the kind of things that will revive buying power. But but absent that, I think we're going to see this continuing uh, degradation of the economy, and of course, economic crises produce political crises. Um, I don't know how far that's going to go, but I think it's very bad. I think it's you know, I think there's a very good chance it will be the worst in my lifetime, and I'm Otis Dust. So, um, you know, <laughs> what, what's, what's the saying? Batten down the hatches. Um, I think it's going to be a very bumpy ride, unfortunately. Yeah, you know, I, I, I can't help but think about the fact that, you know, all of the things that the few things, let me not pretend like there were so many things, but the little bit of relief that this government allowed us to have during the pandemic, like the child tax credit, like the the stimulus checks that we did not get the total amount of, you know, that little bit of relief was snatched away. And it was a political decision to do that. And now the very same administration that made the political decision to take relief away from people is now saying, well, now you just you should just support us continuing to send all of this money to shore up another country's government that we are using to fight a war in Russia. And, and, and I feel like whatever the tides that European nations are dealing with that, that they cannot control, that they're you know, about to be overtaken by in anger from their people because of the high fuel prices, because of the sanctions uh, imposed on Russia, because of this proxy war, we're going to get that too. I think we're going to get that, too. And I agree with you, John, uh, that there's going to be some blowback here. I do wonder, though, Sean, if it's going to manifest itself in. I I, I don't know what it would look like if it's not a mass movement of people. I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned about what that blowback would look like here if it's not mass organization, general strike, that kind of thing. Because what's the alternative to to that? And, you know, other than, just, you know, people just sitting around uh, bemoaning the fact that, um, you know, their government is 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 uh, uh, steamrolling them over again. If, if I if I may very quickly answer that, uh, I fear I don't know. I fear I do not want this to happen, but I fear that we're going to see a rise in violence and terrorist attacks uh, by these people who are 
estranged from the mainstream of society who sees their futures at risk, and we're going to see this this escalation of violence before we see people coming together, uh, because that's just the nature of the United States and this culture of not knowing, this culture of 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 uh, of uh, 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 fiction, right? And so that's my fear. Um, you know, if you if it happened in Germany, uh, one of the most educated and sophisticated societies uh, in the world in in the 1930s, uh, it could certainly happen in the United States. I, I don't want it to happen. Um, I'm not for violence um, yeah. unless it's revolutionary. But I fear that that could be the the uh, what happens. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, John Jeter, for joining us today. And we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. Be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.